I literally ate the same exact breakfast and lunch every day for two and a half years. That was right before I started binge eating. Another client said, I made it 18 months without eating a single bite of flour or sugar, but once I broke that perfect abstinence, it's like I opened the floodgates and can't seem to stop. And here's a third client. I did the whole 30 and literally ate zero processed foods for an entire month. No grain, no sugar, no flour, no alcohol. But I started binging right after, and a year later, I'm still doing it. Is it just me, or does it sound like there might be a pattern here? These words are straight from my clients, and they typify a really common pattern. A period of rigid restriction, followed by what feels like a complete dissolution of self-control. And the strict dieting part is one that people are often super proud of. It made them feel victorious and in control. Some people even say they felt like they were better than all the other people around them eating hamburgers for lunch. But then something changed, and in most cases, the person makes attempt after attempt to get back onto the program that, air quotes, worked so well for them. But it feels like the magic is gone. One false start after another ends the same way, with a lot of treat foods and a sense of failure. If you can relate to this dynamic, or you simply want to learn more about self-control and how it works, this episode is for you. This is the Breaking Up with Binge Eating podcast, where every listen moves you one step closer to complete food freedom. Hosted by me, Georgie Fear, and my co-coach, Mary Claire Brescia. I spend a lot of time reading research papers on nutrition, binge eating disorder, and emotional eating. One finding, which is reported relatively often, is that there's a correlation between a person's level of self-control and disinhibited eating. Disinhibited eating is a term used to describe behaviors that involve a lack of healthy restraint over food intake. That includes binge eating and loss of control eating. It also includes emotional eating or eating in the absence of hunger. Safe to say, every client of mine is working on decreasing some kind of disinhibited eating. So, Seeing the topic of self-control come up over and over, linked to binge eating and emotional eating, gets my attention, and it makes me think a podcast about it could be really valuable. I think it can be really helpful even just to understand things better, because when we know more about self-control and what happens when self-control fails, we can see it's nothing to do with desire or intelligence or innate capacity. It's actually a topic on which much research has already been done. Self-control failures are a normal part of human existence. They play a role in why most people find it difficult to exercise regularly. We see self-control difficulties play an important role in addictions, such as drug or alcohol use disorders, or gambling or sex addiction. A lapse of self-control can lead to raising your voice out of anger, or just hitting that snooze button. Self-control failures are part of marketing. Why do you think the candy bars are right there at the checkout? Facebook and Instagram really want you to accept notifications on your phone, because when you're bored in that work meeting and you see that little icon, even though you're supposed to be taking notes on the fourth quarter budget plans, you're pretty likely to give in to the impulse to see how many people liked your latest cat photo. 
Even when people are prescribed medication by their doctors, many people won't take it consistently because of, you guessed it, a failure of self-control. So the first bit of understanding I want you to take away from this episode, it's normal to have self-control lapses. The second piece of understanding I really want to impart is that self-control lapses aren't as simple as somebody, quote, not being strong enough. They are highly contextual. Think about it. You might know someone or be someone who has a lot of self-control in one area of their life, but then seems to be more impulsive or geared toward immediate gratification elsewhere in their life. Many of the clients I work with struggle with their self-control around food, but they display strong self-control in the way they persevere through school and work challenges, the way they show patience for their kids and spouses, and so on. Some of this boils down to expectations. I mean, if I expect myself to encounter a temptation and I'm confident that I will choose to act in line with my long-term goals, I'm more likely to do that. On the other hand, if I think, oh, hell no, I'm weak, then the odds are that my behavior is again going to be consistent with my prediction. In addition to the expectancy thing, valuation is a key part of understanding self-control and why it sometimes holds solid and sometimes our self-control crumbles like a cheap pinata. Valuation is our personal estimation of something's worth. So if I'm deciding whether to get out of bed or hit the snooze button, I have to ascribe some sort of value to each option. How much is it worth to me to have another five minutes of time in bed versus how much is it worth to me to have five more minutes to get ready and be less hurried to get to my first appointment? According to researchers, self-regulation failures can largely be understood as valuation errors. We might all value those five minutes of sleep differently, right? A new parent who's totally sleep deprived, they might place a really high value on those five extra minutes in bed compared to somebody who has been sleeping plenty. When we're lacking something, it drives up the value. One thing we see that pertains to the eating topic is that food takes on an increased value to people who have experienced food shortage or scarcity. Now, this can be acute, as in, I haven't eaten enough today, I'm super hungry, and I'd sell my left arm for that person's sandwich. But it also can be on a longer time scale. If you've ever not been able to afford enough to eat, or if your parents couldn't afford enough to eat when you were a kid, you've experienced food scarcity. If you've ever been put on a diet or told you couldn't eat certain things, or you could only have a certain amount of particular foods, that also creates food scarcity. And importantly, it inflates the perceived value of food. I remember a brief, brief time when I tried to do a low-carb diet in high school, and I literally was having dreams about baguette, when previously I didn't really have a particular penchant for bread. And that's exactly what happens. When we take something and make it scarce, the value skyrockets. This is super important, so please give it a second of your thought. Do you think food sometimes seems more important to you than to other people? This could be why. You may have increased your valuation of food due to it being scarce at some prior time in your life, even if that was decades ago. The enhanced valuation of food 
can also be skewed toward particular items, like my baguette dreams. Brain imaging studies and eye tracking studies are remarkably consistent that people who are on diets pay a lot more attention to things like images of cake and potato chips. But that head of romaine doesn't really light up our minds or attract our attention in the same way. If you've avoided fats, foods like cheese and peanut butter show an increased reward value. And you may be able to see this in your own life for any category of food that you've limited. So, scarcity is one thing that can screw with our valuation ability and lead to self-control failure. Okay, let's move on to another one. Delay discounting. Delay discounting is the process by which a person devalues future rewards and overemphasizes the pleasure of things which are available immediately or in the very short term. Here's an example. Let's say you entered some fun contest and you won a sweatshirt. And it looks nice. I mean, it's got some really cool graphics on it. It's super soft and comfortable. And you're stoked that you won this awesome sweatshirt. Now, you can choose to have the sweatshirt now or to wait and get it next year. Most people are going to take it now. Having to wait is a bit of a bummer. It decreases the value of that option to have to go through the waiting period. So, delay discounting is how much something drops in value because we have to wait for it. Some people have lower amounts of delay discounting, which means they find it relatively easy to wait. It wouldn't bother them a whole lot to wait a year for that awesome sweatshirt. Other people have higher amounts of delay discounting, and so they're much more prone to go for the thing they can have now, even if it means giving up on something they want long-term. So if they had to choose between that awesome sweatshirt now and that awesome sweatshirt plus a big chunk of money next year, they still might take the awesome sweatshirt now because it's such a devalue to have to wait an additional year for it. There's one more thing that can decrease how much we want a particular reward. And this one's even easier to understand, I think. It's called effort. The amount of work that we have to do to get a given prize is something we'll take into account when we're deciding how much we like that option. I might really like the idea of having another college degree, but if I think about doing papers and assignments and studying, that's going to influence whether I actually decide to do it or not. So scarcity makes us overvalue a particular reward, and having to wait for something or do work for it makes us underestimate the value of a particular reward. Got it? Putting this all together, you might be having some aha moments on why your own self-control failures in the past may have happened. You may have inflated the reward value of unhealthy foods, making the choice to eat it now seem more like a good idea. And you may have undervalued the worth of having a binge-free life, better health or better relationships, because the time and effort created a distortion of them when they didn't seem so important in the moment when a food temptation was present. The distortion of a healthy relationship with food not being all that valuable de-incentivizes us to do things for our recovery. It increases the likelihood that we'll say, yeah, one more time on that binge eating. And that leads me to the good stuff. What can we do with all this information? 
I've got five action items to suggest. Number one, strengthen your sense of integrity and self-trust. Check out the episode of this podcast about self-trust and practice making micro-commitments and seeing them through. Remind yourself of what your values are on a daily basis and ensure that every day you take at least one action that supports them. Review the actions you've taken in the past where you showed that you do have self-control and the ability to make good decisions. This can build your confidence. Having a stronger sense of self-trust boosts self-esteem and confidence, giving you the all-important advantage of a positive expectation. Number two, recognize the impact of food scarcity and create your world with food abundance. This is one of the reasons why dieting to lose weight is counterproductive to binge eating recovery. I always say you can lose weight, but recover from the eating disorder first, normalize your relationship with food, and weight loss will come so much easier down the road. Food abundance looks like no food off limits and giving yourself frequent reassurance that there's plenty of food for you today, tomorrow, and into the future. I encourage my clients to tell themselves, I'm not going on a restrictive diet ever again. Planning on eating five or six times every day is one way I help my clients create that feeling of food abundance. The famine is over. Side note, if you wanna lose weight, that's okay but expect to achieve that through feeding your body in accordance with its needs. You won't have to starve it or control it with a restrictive diet ever. Number three, look for opportunities to practice delayed gratification. Even if it's choosing to have something a little later today or tomorrow instead of right now, that's meaningful. You might also consider things that don't involve food, like investing money or putting time into your relationship, as all of these things strengthen your ability to reap long-term rewards. Appreciate things that you have now that are the result of work you did in the past. For example, if your house is looking pretty clean today because you picked it up over the weekend, that's a perfect example. You put in time and some effort, and now you get to enjoy a home that's more comfortable and pleasant to be in. If you completed training or education, which enabled you to have the job that you have today, you practiced delayed gratification to put in those hours of effort. So keep practicing and recognize the areas where you've done this in the past. Even if you feel like you've struggled to practice delayed gratification with food, look at all the other places that you've proven you do have this ability. And remember, It's just an expansion of that skill to learn to apply it to food. Same skill, just a new context. Number four, when it comes to evaluating the effort that we'll need to attain something, be aware that our brains tend to overestimate that aspect. I mean, getting groceries is gonna be so much work, our brains will say. I have to drive there, get a car, walk up and down the aisles. It's just a huge pain in the butt. Calling for delivery pizza would be a much better idea. But really, if you take a step back from this dialogue, getting groceries is not the biggest effort ever. You're unlikely to break a sweat or breathe hard. For most people, it doesn't cause fear or panic, physical pain or existential pain to enter a grocery store. So remind your brain 
You know, thanks for trying to keep me from wasting effort, but I think we're overestimating how much work this will actually take. Number five, pay lots of attention to the immediate rewards that you get from choosing healthy behaviors instead of compulsive eating. Because right away, you do enjoy some perks. You can feel proud of yourself instantly. You can feel strong and capable for overcoming a challenge. You can enjoy a feeling of hopefulness, and you can appreciate your own bravery and effort. You can relish the idea that you'll have a good night's sleep instead of one plagued by heartburn and an overfull stomach. Heap on the immediate rewards, because as we know, they can be much more influential on your decision-making than the long-term things, like lowering your cholesterol or feeling less joint pain from a reduced body weight. I hope you'll give these five things a try. If you found this episode helpful, let me know by leaving a rating or review. And if you didn't find it helpful, let me know that too. I'm open to all feedback. Love mail and hate mail can be sent to georgiefear at gmail.com. I will see you soon.